This morning, we begin a new sermon series called Questions Christians Ask, and the question for today is, why do people suffer? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus references two situations in which a group of people have suffered, and so as you hear the text, listen for God's good news. From Luke 13, beginning at verse 1, at that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the people living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Christians ask questions. We ask things like, why do people suffer? We ask things like, how is it that we can find hope in this broken world of ours? Around this time of year, as we turn towards Lent, we sometimes say, why did Jesus die? And what happens to people like us when we die? Does God answer prayer? And if so, how? Am I really Christian if I'm asking these questions? The title of this Lenten sermon series is Questions Christians Ask, and we will look at each of these four, uh, each of these questions during these 40 days that lead up towards Easter morning. But the real point of this sermon series, I'm going to give the whole thing away right here, is to affirm that questions are good. When we raise our questions about God and faith and life, when we wrestle with the feelings we're having of sadness and unfairness and the mysterious conundrums, we, we are not being unfaithful. In fact, I scanned the first half of the gospel according to Luke up to the point that we read from this morning, and I noted, this isn't exactly accurate, but at least there were 17 questions raised by faithful followers of God in the first half of the good news. For example, Mary questions the angel who tells her that she is about to have a baby. She says, how can this be? After Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown, his parents' friends cross their arms and shake their heads and look at one another and say, is not this Joseph's son? The religious experts, the, the kind of religious know-it-alls of Jesus' day, come to him and ask, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But even Jesus' closest friends ask him tough questions. For, for instance, there is that day when one of Jesus' close friends has a child who's sick near death, and Jesus' friends come to him and say, hurry up. Do you not care that she is ill and dying? 
The stories you see, the stories of Jesus in the Bible, they are more of a dialogue between Jesus and the people around him than they are a monologue from Jesus about how we could be Christian. So if you're one of those people who sometimes doubts, who occasionally wonders, hmm, I don't know if this makes sense. If you've ever been unsure about your faith, you are in good company. To question is to engage meaningfully in dialogue with the Holy One of Heaven. Don't be afraid to ask, and don't be as surprised if Jesus does not directly answer your question, or if Jesus answers your question with another question. He often does that. He loves questions. Today's question is, why do people suffer? My eight-year-old grandson, Jacob, was diagnosed with very serious autism when he was two years old. Just a few weeks ago, I was at their house. I was helping Jacob's older sister take him through his bedtime routine with his bath and getting on the pajamas. And in the middle of all of that, his older sister said to me, Jacob can now say, go. I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, in the past, if Jacob wanted you to leave him alone or give him some privacy, he would say, bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye. But now, she said, he's learned to say the word go. So you know, go away when he says that. And she was just beaming with pride as she celebrated her little brother's accomplishment. And I was too. But in the back of my mind, I was wondering, how will Jacob get by in a world that relies on words when he is mostly nonverbal. Why must little Jacob suffer as he matures? Because Jacob's brain was created differently from other kids whose brains are neurotypical. This week, I read about Dimitri and Anna. It's a true story. Dimitri has excelled in football. He's already been signed to play on a professional team. Anna is bright and has already been accepted to law school. They are both 18 years old and they held bright futures. Until one day about a year ago when their parents called and said, it's, it's urgent. You must evacuate. The war is coming. Suddenly, their internet was cut, the electricity was off, and the only source of information they had in their town of Maripol, Ukraine, were the Russian soldiers who had invaded. They packed what they could. They figured the only way out they had was to get on a train and go towards St. Petersburg and to change trains there in Russia and take another train to Hungary. And that's what they did. They packed up everything they could in a small suitcase. They made it to Hungary, where they were greeted by folks they had never met before in their lives, members of the church who were offering them food and shelter and safety. Why is it that Dimitri and Anna must suffer while you and I here in the States celebrate with glee the victory of Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes, who are able to play football freely without fear of bombs falling on their homes or their schools. When I was growing up as a little girl in Fort Worth, Texas, there was a pastor in my hometown named John Claypool. 
His little girl was diagnosed with leukemia and died. John wrote a book about his faith during this tragic time. In the book, he said that when his little girl was diagnosed with leukemia, he asked all the same questions that anyone he asked. He asked, why? Why, God? Why did this happen? Why does my daughter have leukemia? Why would any little girl get leukemia? Why does leukemia exist? And he wrote, there is more honest faith in the act of questioning than in the act of silent submission. For implicit in the very asking is the faith that some light can be given. During this difficult season in his family's life, he said that one of the most comforting letters came to him from a theologian named Carlisle Marney. Marney admitted that he had no explanation for why leukemia happens. But he wrote, I fall back on the notion that God has a lot to give account for. In today's scripture lesson, Jesus addresses two instances of suffering, two terrible tragedies that the people in Jesus' day were very familiar with. The first was when some people from Galilee had traveled up to Jerusalem to worship in the Holy Temple, and while they were there, kneeling in prayer, they are slaughtered. The Roman governor, Pilate, sends soldiers to kill them in their very act of worship, and Jesus recognizes on the face of those around him shock, dismay, panic, anger. And so he says to them in the midst of their angst, were these people who Pilate killed for their faith worse sinners than all the rest? And he says, no, they were not. They did not deserve to suffer like that. And secondly, Jesus talks about the 18 people who were in the wrong place at the wrong time when the Tower of Siloam fell and they all perished. Now, we don't know that much about this tower, but... Maybe it was part of the city walls that protect the city, protected the city and kept it safe. Maybe the tower guarded a strategic point where there was water or a fortress. All we know is that there was this horrific disaster. And as they were moving the stones away, they unearthed 18 victims. And Jesus says, were these who died in the accident worse offenders than anyone else? And he says, no, they were not. Who knows why the tower fell? Maybe it was shoddy workmanship. Maybe it was an earthquake. But Jesus says in no uncertain terms that whether suffering happens because of evil, like what Pilate did, or a natural disaster like this tower falling, you cannot blame the victim. It wasn't their fault. God was not punishing them. Now, Jesus knows that the prevailing wisdom of his day in the ancient world was Bad things happen to bad people. And so Jesus refutes that. Jesus knows that God is a God who is capable of judging, of holding us accountable for whether or not we create a world of love and justice. But Jesus says God does not send suffering. And perhaps by now, Jesus can feel in his own bones that suffering is a big part of his own future. The cross lies just up ahead, that moment when Jesus' closest friends will deny ever having known him, will betray him, 
Though he has come to the earth to reveal God's unconditional love, the powers at be are already plotting the demise of Jesus. Jesus knows from his own lived experience that there is not a one-to-one equation with sin and suffering. But Jesus only answers part of our question. He assures them that suffering is not God's punishment. He comforts them with this good news. But then Jesus sees, says something that seems so terribly strange. And when we hear something that sounds just odd in the scriptures, it usually tells us that we're getting close to some revelation, some message. Jesus says something now that seems so shocking, so insensitive. He says, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Ouch. Now, couldn't Jesus have said something comforting like, well, you know, they're all in a better place now, those who died? Nope. Jesus seizes on this moment of fear and angst and says, this suffering, this tragedy is a moment for all of us that we can recognize that each one of us in our own lives has the opportunity to change, to turn our lives around. That's what this word repent means. It is the word in Greek metanoia, transformation, to turn and go a new direction. In the Hebrew Bible, this word, this concept, repent, means to turn towards a new relationship with God. It includes the idea of finding a new direction in one's life. You see, Jesus refuses to let this question be an intellectual one. For him, the question is a spiritual one, a question of the heart. He senses the vulnerable place inside of them as they look around and see the families who have suffered in these tragedies, friends who have suffered unnecessarily. He sees the deep wound that suffering opens up in our own hearts and the way it shakes us at our core. He recognizes that vulnerable open space in each of us. I like the way Barbara Brown Taylor describes it. She said, terrible things happen and you are not always to blame, but don't let that stop you from doing what you were doing. That torn place your fear has opened up inside of you is a holy place. Look around while you are there. Pay attention to what you feel. It may hurt you to stay there, and it may hurt you to see, but it is not the kind of hurt that leads to death. It is the kind that leads to life. Life. I saw this. I saw this when White House Press Secretary Jim Brady was shot while standing next to President Reagan, who was also shot. After that horrific suffering, Jim and Sarah Brady spent years of their lives trying to change the gun laws in this country to require background checks on gun owners. They finally succeeded. Unfortunately, a loophole in the law came along in 2008 that allows folks to skirt that gun safety law, but the Brady's' pain caused them to embrace metanoia, to repent, to change, to work for a new direction, not only for their family, but for the life of this country. I saw this when the pandemic came. Maybe you saw it too. 
relatives, including some of my own, who had been estranged from one another, picked up the telephone and called each other and said, how are you? I care about you. Metanoia, change, a turn, a shift. I saw this just last month. I attended a funeral. My high school friend Dan lost his 22-year-old daughter Jessie on New Year's Eve in a hit-and-run accident around 12.30 at night, just a few minutes after she and her friends left the bar. On the day of the service, over a thousand folks gathered in the sanctuary. Most of them were college students. They were all wondering, what does this mean? What can I do with the one brief life I have been given to live? Life is not for certain. In our pain, we can discover new parts of ourselves. I saw this when a newly divorced man in his 30s went to therapy and asked the hard questions of his own soul, who am I? Where is my faith? What does it mean to me? Where am I going? Jesus does not tell us the source of our suffering, only that God does not send it. And so we have the permission to be gentle with ourselves. We can live with the ambiguity and with the mystery and with the not knowing. But Jesus says in the midst of that, you do have a choice, always a choice to turn again and reorient one's life to a relationship with the one who gave us life. I just finished reading one of the most powerful novels I have ever read. It was haunting. It was difficult to read. I probably would have put it down if I was not stuck at home in one room of the house trying to get through COVID. But I didn't have anything else to do, so I kept reading. So much suffering by an innocent child. The child's name is Damon, but his nickname is Demon. The book is Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. The book absolutely gripped my heart and just twisted it back and forth. You see, Demon is born in a single wide trailer in Southern Appalachia. His mom, when he is born, is already a widow who ricochets in and out of drug rehab programs, which ricochets demon in and out of the woefully inadequate and downright cruel foster care system in Southern Appalachia. At one point, his foster parents make this 11-year-old boy go out and get a job and earn money to buy his own groceries. Almost everyone this sweet little boy demon knows has been devastated in one way or the other by the opioid crisis that is ripping through Southern Appalachia. Just when I thought things could not get any worse for this little boy, I would turn the page and things would get worse. But Demon is also a compelling character. He is a young boy with dreams. He dreams of seeing the ocean. He dreams of the wide open expanse of the ocean. He calculates how long it would take him to walk there. Could he go there by bus? Could he go there in a car? He dreams of the ocean. It is like a dream for freedom. Along the way, Demon bumps into a few folks who see that 
He's talented as an artist. He has a superior intellect as a student. He's ferocious as an athlete. There are these coaches and teachers and nurses, just a couple of them along the way, even a few friends in the foster care system who recognize that Demon has exceptional gifts. They are the lights to which Demon can turn or refuse to turn to. I absolutely fell in love with this little boy named Demon, and I kept agonizing over his fate. Would he perish? Or would his life exhibit the change, the metanoia, that Jesus promises is possible in the gospel? Isn't that really the question of all of our lives? Is this holy reversal this opportunity to turn and go in a new direction, isn't it, isn't it always there for all of us to turn towards the wide ocean of God and begin life anew?